There it is. <laughs> Yo! <laughs> I wonder how many people have hit, like, leave meeting. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, so we were just talking about how uh, Zoom has changed. You know, uh, it... It's crazy how Zoom became this. Is this our real intro? Yeah, we're, we're recording. Yeah. Right. Zoom became the default for uh, recording podcasts, right? Like um, Axe to Grind. They used to sit in the same living room and record with each other. And now they do it all via Zoom, if I'm correct. Right? Do you guys know? I'm sure someone will correct us if we're not. So. I think, not I think sure. that that's true. I listened to a couple episodes recently. I hadn't listened in a while, I have to admit, but I listened recently. You know the oddest thing, and I hope I hope this gets back to them. I actually do hope. I found myself agreeing with Patrick on several points. Well, and no even, shit, you're the Patrick of this podcast. <laughs> I can see. That. I even text, I texted Tom, and I was like, "Hey, 2021, it's a wild place when you're agreeing with Patrick's uh, hot takes." And he's like, "Yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you, man." But. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, every podcast got to have one, right? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we're here today uh, via Zoom for the Where It Went podcast, where we are back on track. Back on yeah. track. You, uh, I don't know that I've ever heard ten yard fight in this century. Okay. If you if you were to put in in my headphones right now, ten yard fight, fast break in my eyes. I would not be able to tell the difference between the three. Well, a couple I bet of those. you would. Yeah, I don't think so. I bet you would. You're going to have to listen to anyway. I'll, oh, yeah, I mean, that's true. I'll do. I, I, I've proven recently, especially on our recent discussion, which is going to be up for patrons this Friday. Uh, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, on Friday, if you're a, a patron, you'll hear our discussion, discussion about an entire discography of a band that I enjoyed maybe two songs out of five albums, I've proven that I can, I can just hang in there. You know what I'm saying? This is, this is science. You don't always like your job, but you do it. Fair so enough. Anyway, we're here on the Where It Went podcast, <laughs> finally to get to it, where we are discussing the Revelation Records discography in chronological order. And today we are back, took a couple detours on the highway, and Jason, why don't you tell them what we're talking about on this episode? Today, we're talking about Sensefield, Killed for Less LP, Revelation Records, number 32. Wait, I thought uh, it was 33. Is it 30? No, I, I'm going from Hobbs, um, from the PDF, and it says 32. No, wait. Yeah, 33 is rigged. You're this right. 32. Oh, did I mess up on the PDF? No, you no, didn't. Oh, dude. No. The Going, PDF yeah. is, um, I messed is the go-to. Oh, you messed up. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, if you hear this crinkling of plastic, I just opened <laughs> what I thought was my sealed edition of Killed for Less. But when I take the shrink wrap off, I realize that it's an aftermarket ceiling and it's actually a used cassette. It's like the cover is like broken and shit. Ah, uh, that's okay. Well, maybe I don't know. Maybe it's just old. I mean, this thing did come out in 1994, so it could have been just sat in a warehouse for 27 like, years. For 27 years, and now I just opened it for the first time. I really enjoy uh, box breaking like that. Opening, uh, I'm proud of of doing that. So we're talking about killed for less today. We all got some feelings about it, but before we get to the feelings and before we get to the interview i think 
It's already time to Man, I'm tired. Well, that seems to be a reoccurring theme in uh, in these shouts that we got. I think I know a good remedy for being tired. Take but, a nap? Uh, no, napping no. is for cowards and children. What if I just wanted to stare at the walls for a little bit? <laughs> I mean, you could climb up the walls. Would there but... be something good to drink? Yeah, I think there might the be. Walls? I think so. If I just wanted to maybe drink some black coffee and stare at the walls, I think I would reach for Essex Roasters. EssexCoffeeRoasters.com. Um, roasted to order using ethically sourced beans. Um, I mean, you can't really, can't really beat it. Uh, and, and there's a code to use, a secret code to save you 10%. People got to use that code, man. Mm-hmm. I get a lot of people tell me, oh, yeah, coffee. It's cool you guys talked about coffee. You spent 10 minutes talking about coffee. And I said, order a goddamn bag then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I really enjoy waiting for coffee in the mail. Like I could go down the street to my local roaster and buy some. But I like ordering this stuff and getting new. I just actually today finished uh, some coffee from Heavy Water. I, I I enjoy ordering coffee from places around the country, from Heartwork, from uh, Slow Bloom, from you know other other places. And Essex, uh, like I said, I have said before, I ordered the Be Well coffee when it first came out, and that was my introduction to Essex Coffee Roasters, and it was fucking delicious. And so I will keep ordering from them, and uh, keep using that code. Greg, what is what is the code? We didn't say what it is. We didn't say it, Jason. No. What's yes. the code, man? Give me the code. Hey, I'm sorry, I was I was over here checking out the merch that they have. They also have some merch. They've got some enamel pins that look really nice, and they got a shirt that says "Need more coffee," and I feel that. And if I was to order that shirt, I would use the code where it went. Boom. And remember, this coffee is Bill Stevenson approved. Who? Ooh, that's plays right. drums on that Black Flag song we were referencing earlier. You're right. From the Slip It In album. Wait till the Black Flag Challenge oh, to hear our thoughts on those. <laughs> but, um, and of course, Descendants and all known coffee enthusiasts. So EssexCoffeeRoasters.com. Check it out. Jason, what's that Descendants shirt that you're wearing today? What's this it from? This is the Winter Tour, the bonus Winter 86 Tour shirt. Is that a, a real one? It is, is not a it is not a real one. It's it, it was remade, but they did an awesome job uh-huh. with it. It looks exactly like the. Did they the remake it, or is that a bootleg? Yeah. No, no, they uh, did. Descendants uh, officially remade it. Uh huh. They're really good think, at that stuff, I think. And the they fine are. all they did the fine all tour too one. Did you get that? I actually got a bootleg of that one that was top notch, so I never ordered that one. The only thing I've ever ordered from the Descendants was a coffee mug. I've never, I've never actually owned a Descendants shirt. Oh, I had like at one point I had like forty. Uh-huh. Ooh, it's it's hard to keep up with all of them. Yeah, it is. Because Sherry does all that cool, you know, um, show specific uh-huh. design for them. Tour specific. Like you got to really yeah. be on it. You know who else is good at that? Judge in the past few years, which we talked about the storming shirts. I have like four different storming shirts. Yeah. Storming through the West Coast, storming through the Southwest. I think Porcel brought one home to me once when he was still living out here. That was some East Coast jaunt. And uh, I think that it's really cool 
when bands do that. And I also think that it's cool when people bootleg stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Uh, anyone else that we need to shout out? I, you know what? I have a shout it, but I'm, I'm not ready to do it yet. Uh, I have one. Yeah, you go. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to um, uh, one of the guests we've had on here before, Jeff Caudill. He, uh, he uh, you know, he's from Game Face. He was on our far side um, Rochambeau episode. He did the, le- the, you know, artwork for that. His daughter Melody has a um, a project called uh, Career Woman, and they haven't uh, that. Which I mean, really, I believe it's just her. She has a song called um, Balcony, and it's it's really good. Uh, she's a couple songs up on Spotify and Bandcamp. So just uh, and there was a piece on Brooklyn Vegan uh, about her this past week. So check out Career Woman. Good stuff. Cool. I got um, one too. Yeah, what do you got? I did a menu for a friend, Alex Z. He opened up a Charm School. It's an ice cream shop here in mm, Richmond. Yeah, I've heard of it. But if you ever come to Richmond for a show or something, they opened up a new soft serve location Ooh. on Forest Hill. So if you, if you look up Charm School Study Hall, I did the menu for them, and they also have a vegan soft serve. Nice. So I think that would uh, appeal to a lot of listeners. I enjoy soft the pod. I'm not. Yeah. Lie. Hopefully you can come. Both of you can come to town sometime, and we can head over there. Let's go to United Blood. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's do it. I'm only doing fests from now on. I'm not interested in going to actual gigs. Yeah, just uh, fests. You know, yesterday you, you tick all, so many things off the box. Or off of, the, uh, speaking of fests, yesterday, uh, as of this recording, yesterday I went to the Rev parking lot fest, and I got to yeah. see. Popeye play some acoustic songs. Um, I went with my kids. There was a lot of kids there actually. And he played Hero. He played Audience. He played uh, Wish You Lonely, maybe. Um, Is that a song? Or I Hope You're Unhappy? What is it? (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I I hope hope that you're unhappy. Yeah, he played that. And then he played a funny song about his cats. And his all the animals that live in his house. It was and my my kids thought that that was really funny. He was talking about how he has like nine cats and rabbits and raccoons and all this stuff. It was really funny. And um, his mom was there. Who's, okay, you know he's got to be in his fifties, so his mom's probably you know in her eighties, and she was there watching her son play acoustic. It was really cool. Uh, Trust Records was in the house, uh, and Greg Benick from Trial was juggling for trust records which was something to see so that was very entertaining it was cool uh jordan was making pizzas that looked and, tight um yeah that was cool was he it, making like regular pizzas and vegan pizzas yes that, yeah yeah i had a I had, I had a little oven there yeah he, he and he does that from time to time in the parking lot uh for his friends and acquaintances and um the only thing that i only bought two things at the whole uh, parking lot fest, I bought some vegan treats from Peach's Bake Shop, which is out of Los Angeles. And I bought a wool seven inch for Greg and in the, in the dollar bin. And that's all I bought the whole day. I, I, there, was, there was some cool stuff. Maggot Stomp Records was there. Program was there. Uh, saw Rich and Shauna from the Safari book, Safari Club book. Um, you know, a lot of celebrities were there, Mike Gator and, um, my dude Fern 
and I Akiba. saw Doug from Dag Nasty was there. Doug yeah. Caddy. Oh yeah, I did. Uh, see and uh, I did see. I didn't introduce myself because you know we've only talked here. But um, Jeff Cottle was also watching Popeye, so I'm sure I missed a lot of opportunities to introduce myself as the dude from the podcast. But I'm a little bit socially awkward. I, I would have figured you'd have been swarmed. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, well, the only I one they would need security detail. The only, the only <laughs> one who recognized me from the podcast was Carlos from No Echo. I did a little shout out uh, on on his uh, Instagram live stream, but um, otherwise, I, you know, yeah. Let me ask you a question. Go. How was seeing something live again? Was it? Did it feel any different than you seeing a show like that pre shutdown? Uh, it felt the same because I went to the last Rev parking lot fest and it felt, it felt the same, you know, there's just a bunch of booths set up, people walking around treats. The only thing different was, um, you know, there was people wearing masks, people not wearing masks. If I went up to talk to, cause I'm fully vaccinated and I had COVID, so I'm yeah. not getting COVID again. You're like right Superman. Now. Yeah. So if I went to talk to someone and they were wearing a mask, I put my mask on out of courtesy. Yeah. If whoever I was talking to was not wearing a mask, then you just thought, fuck you. Well, I, right. I meant more like the feel. I meant more like you know the what? feeling of there being was... in the presence of someone playing live music. Um, that Did was... it affect you differently? No. It okay. Felt, it felt, I mean, it felt like I went home, like home in the metaphoric sense, you know, it was like, yeah, I'm home. This is like, this is it. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't crowded. It wasn't people crammed in together. So it, it didn't yeah, have I would that think same, this doesn't. This isn't gonna big feeling. That, this, yeah, isn't this isn't gonna hit like same. that. I think what more so than because I didn't consider this a gig. I didn't consider this like a hardcore show. Yeah, it was a gather, a public gathering, yeah. and you could tell because I went to the last one. There was twice as many people at this one. People drove from San Diego. People drove from Los Angeles people were excited to be out and doing something fun or cool. So it was, would you say it was more than just another crowd? It was a sunny, it was a sunny it, day in Southern. It was a Southern gathering in Yeah, Southern that's what I was looking for. California. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I was looking for yours, Jason. <laughs> I was looking for the Operation Ivy. It was more than just another crowd. Whoa. But I thought that I would, the next time I see live music, no matter what it is, if I feel any sort of connection to it, that it's just going to be the, it's going to be uh, You're gonna emotional cry. is what I expect. You're going to sit That's there blubbering while watching know. like some like uh, pitchfork. Approved. Well, we'll see. I've got my tickets to go see well, Big Frida next Friday. Here's the so thing. Like, I don't think I'm going to cry for that. But It was kind of, and I'm not diminishing Popeye at all. But it was a guy in a parking lot playing acoustic guitar. Yeah, well, that, that was yeah, going to be fair. my take. Which is like, I, it's you know, always going to have the same feel to me. It's like a, one person playing in a parking lot at a ga at a free gathering is like I can't know. imagine how awkward that must be because there's a oh, big yeah, there's a, there's a big horseshoe and everybody's yeah. standing like 20 feet away from you and it's talking. From what what Dave Bird the calls the fuck you horseshoe yeah <laughs> i have some i have some uh some strong thoughts on the hardcore horseshoe that has appeared over the last 5 years but we don't have time to get into all okay, that right fair, now but i fair. i do have some i've studied it I have lots of thoughts and feelings about it, and I think I, I can explain it. Let's do a bonus episode on it, just the three of us. Yeah, just talking about the horseshoe, talking about real important issues. Um, anything else that we need to talk about? I, I, no. 
I feel like there was someone else that I wanted to give a bit at bow, but um, you know, I just mentioned a whole lot of people's names just now, and I think next that time, it's, yeah, it's probably just time to get into the. Oh, I did want to give a bit at bow to the dudes in tuning. We uh, yes. premiered one of their songs on our last episode, and since then they've gotten a tremendous amount of press. Uh, you know, they've been featured in all sorts of blogs and webzines and people are really talking about it. And people, I think, are really excited. Um, do you know when that record drops, Greg? Uh, July, whatever that first Friday in July, the second, July is 2nd. Up for pre-order already or is that when the pre-order goes up? Uh, pre-orders go up. At, we're, t- we're recording this on a Sunday. Yeah. By the time people hear this Wednesday, they'll, they go up tomorrow. Oh, Monday. So if you're listening to this, there's only 200, and you want to check it out, uh, it's on Indecision Records. And if you're a fan of melodic hardcore, I really highly suggest you check this out and uh, keep your eyes open for what they do in the you know coming up. I think it's cool. So bit of boda tuning. Let's go. Let's do it. All right, kick it. here this morning that that you know that doesn't have a lot of energy in it what's up no greg you know what i'm just gonna let you do it you kick it because i (laughs) i I can't i can't get in the right that's fine space yeah all right everybody so we are here um with one of the more anticipated bands i think from you know when we started this journey where where it went podcast going through the revelation catalog of course there was you know the Oh, it'll be cool to hear you talk about Gorilla Biscuits and Judge and Youth of Today. But as far as what we ended up terming the college years, trademark Javier Van Huss, um, Sensefield is one that always comes up. Uh, you know, I, I remember posting a uh, like a story on Instagram a while back, like who's excited for Sensefield? And I don't think I've ever had that much engagement on like a a story post that we've done before through our Instagram of just people like, Oh my God, I can't wait. Um, And I feel like with Sensefield, everybody kind of has their particular record really with any, that's like the one near and dear to them. Mm -hmm. But uh, the first one we're going to talk about today is red. I mean, I think that even beyond that people have a revelation records release that is near and dear to them. And this record is in that, pantheon from like a huge yes. majority of the people because yeah. yeah people think about like youth of today and war zone and gorilla biscuits but then like we said as they as people start to get older or people like me who experienced this album basically in real time this is an album that people really hold on to and and hold in high regard for for many reasons so i think this is going to be a good um, a, a good listen for people who, you know, m- maybe just need some of the history. Um, maybe they need some, some t- to that connection with this album. This is just going to intensify it. But for all of us, it's just an a, a exploration of a really good album. 
So I think we're all stoked to be here today. Yeah. So one of the things I guess I want before we kick off is that it may be a little confusing for people. And, you know, I guess pre-internet, it was probably even confusing in real time. Um, this was just a little bit before my time. Like building was the real time one for me, which we'll get to. Uh, just, just a little aside. Sure. When you talk about I, I, that building's my favorite. I mean, just I just wanted to throw that out there. But what? Oh, so know, I can say that and not be. Yeah, a, we, if we're going to talk favorite okay. records, I love all <laughs> of it. But if I had to pick a favorite, I think building's my favorite. That's mine too, but like I've said it on here before, so I don't think it's a surprise. And in the piece we did on No Echo, um, I put it in my top five. You know, they asked me what my top five Rev albums are, so it's building. I, I, I was I, less I, involved in that one, so it turned out way better. You know. <laughs> so <laughs> I was saying um, the chronologically, this is the first Rev release, but the self-titled is actually your first stuff. So mm-hmm. I guess, uh, Chris, tell, you know, if you can maybe walk us through a little bit of working with Revelation. I know you guys, you guys are both in Reason to Believe, right? Yeah. And then you, uh, you know, ter- ch- I don't want to say change over to Sensefield, but Sensefield starts. Yeah, we, um, Rodney had been an original member of Reason to Believe. He played on the 7-inch and then he went off to art school and did some stuff. We had a kind of a revolving door of members. And after we recorded that LP, we needed to go on tour. Some of the musicians like on the album didn't want to go or weren't available. And we got Rodney back, brought him back down from San Francisco and kind of did a couple practices and we're like on the road. So, <clears throat> so we kind of lived in that world for a little while. And once we got back to town and Rodney moved back to LA, we kept playing and um, kind of Rodney's kind of more recent influences started to seep into the band, which were not hardcore, right? So, <laughs> um, but we liked the, we all liked what he was doing, and we all liked that, and you know, we're interested in exploring that. So we started doing some of some of these songs, and decided that it didn't make sense to kind of incorporate those into Reason to Believe because that would just bum people out. And so we we decided to split the thing off and start a different band. And then we're doing both concurrently for a while. And eventually we just decided we liked what we were doing in Sensefield more and started doing that. And then we, I mean, Sensefield really started in a, in, a, in a little bubble. Like we were kind of, we kind of put all that stuff together, like sort of, I don't know, I feel like we were sort of sep- we, we were kind of separated from what was going on. Like, I don't think we were, we weren't like, following what all the other bands from our former scene were doing. We weren't really, we were just kind of doing whatever it was we were doing. Clueless totally, in like the best creative way, I think. Yeah, totally out of the loop. So once we kind of brought that out there, it was like, you know, we were just completely, <laughs> completely out of step with what a lot of people were doing. So it was like, it was interesting once we actually started playing these songs and like getting grouped in with like hardcore bands that like how different we had become from that. Mm-hmm. What were, so Rodney, what were some of the influences that were, you know, making kind of steer from Reason to Believe, which like Chris said, even to me, Reason to Believe had a unique sound, like didn't necessarily sound like typical, like what someone would expect from from hardcore. We always say that uh, the song, uh, the song, of Living sort of killed Reason to Believe. It was of Living and Sight Unseen 
we sort of recorded those two on a demo and John sang them and Chris came up, like wrote all the parts. Well, he wrote all of uh, Sight Unseen, but it, those two songs to me felt like, yeah, this is like a new thing. We're going to do a different. It's, and then we were listening to a lot of the later, like post-hardcore that was getting way more elaborate and, you know, getting a lot more like pop, you know? So it, I kind of, that was sort of the, you know, thought of living really though. That just, just didn't seem right to do as reason to believe. It was just too mellow, I guess. Yeah, that, that is the one we always credit as killing reason to believe. It was just way too different, but cool. And we, <laughs> I remember really liking that one because it was totally unlike anything I was doing. Rodney was using chords that I didn't even, hadn't even seen before. I thought, oh, wow, that's kind of neat, you know? And I just did the, the, the main, you know, the chord progression, and he came up with all the layers of the bass line and the guitar parts, and I was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is the kind of music I want to do. Like, it was all elaborate and all this different stuff going on. See, I didn't, I didn't know that both bands existed for, even for just a little bit at the you, same time. Yeah, <laughs> we were still playing Reason to Believe shows while we were doing Sensefield, right? I mean... I tried to bring it back forever, but John was like, no, man, we got to move it. I'm like, but there'll be people at our shows. Like, We'll just, we'll play these songs. We'll just say we're reasonably like all the bands were kind of, a lot of bands were changing their style and then still being, you know, the same band. And it wasn't going well for anybody. So it was yeah, probably like for the uniform best. choice and unity. Yeah, I wasn't and... going to name names. <laughs> it's okay. You can say it. <laughs> you know, there's something to be said. Like, so really in a way, if you guys just decide to say, screw it, we're, we're just going to keep calling it reason to believe like this could have been reason to believe killed for less. Yeah. <laughs> think about can... how sad people would have been when they, if they heard the other record and bought that. They're like, Oh my God, what happened? Yeah, like you wonder. I, th I think it seems like you guys obviously made the right choice because you get to you get but, to start with no boundaries. Yeah, but don't think there was any kind of real conscious like plan. You know, it was just like, nah, that'd be the easy <laughs> way. We're gonna just we're gonna go play Hollywood for a couple of years to our friends to, and <laughs> to know people and to <laughs> live in obscurity. And then yeah, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't until we started like ex like old reason to believe fans kind of got wind that we had a new band that they started asking us to play. And I think we played like a sort of a hardcore show. I don't remember if you remember we that one. For, uh, wasn't it Caton or the guy, was it the guy from Hyrax had another band? House of Suffering. And it was, uh, it's like kind of, kind of rap. Super scary little club in Long Beach. Uh, Toe Jam. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and kids were like, where the hell were you? We were, we were like, we'd look at flyers of your playing up in LA for a 21, you know, at a bar somewhere. Uh -huh. and they're like, what the hell? Yeah. Then we realized, oh, this, we should probably be doing this. This is way more fun. And, you know, um, I think that's how, isn't that how Revelation got wind of us? Because some of the people in the, and the warehouse had our little self-released CD, that first blue one. Isn't that yeah. what happened? And it kind of almost seemed like it went to the East Coast first. Like, it was really popular in, like, Philly and stuff. I was going to say, I'm, from, I'm in Philly, there. and yeah. Sensefield was always, like, 
I feel like a big deal here. Like it almost uh, seems like somebody from Philly sent it to Jordan out here to like you got to check these guys out. You know, like because mm-hmm. it was really close when we got sort of noticed. It seemed like on both both ends, kind of. And that it was cool to get you know for him to take interest in it. I mean, we we're all, of course aware. Um, a revelation and all the records and stuff they'd done, but it was kind of, it was a tough decision at first because we're like, Oh my God, do we want to get like stuck associated back with, I mean, do we want to like root ourselves in the hardcore world again? Like, is right. that, is that the right thing to do? Yeah. You, you, but, um, at the time you probably couldn't see the direction that it was heading with the more yeah. post hardcore melodic, the, the bands that are kind of around you at this time in the revelation catalog is like, Far side into another orange nine yeah. millimeter, not hardcore bands. Yeah, and that, that's when it made sense. And we're just like, well, I mean, how could it can't hurt to have a? I mean, Revelation is one of those labels that has a following. You know, people buy Revelation records; they buy each record, and right. that isn't a that isn't a bad thing. Um, yeah. So, and Jordan was into it, and he seemed always seemed so sincere. So I was like, yeah, sure, why not? I mean, it's not like we don't <clears throat> have anything else going on anyway. So. I mean, I think we had sort of credit for reason to believe, but it might have been a little bit of a hack, happy accident because I really just wanted to do like, you know, Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana and, you know, basically just, you know, but if you, if you do that as a, like that sounds more melodic as a, if people think of it as a hardcore band, it's kind of more innovative and like, wow, they're trying all this kind of different stuff. If they're looking at at it through like a more of a metal hardcore view and we were i think just trying to do rock pretty much yeah but i think well the reason to believe you know and then the 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 straight edge kind of connections or you know the positive stuff that was sort of associated and then the positivity of sense you know it all tied in but it was just sort of funny like i just wanted to do rock music but then the hardcore kids loved it more than anybody I think, you know, other band we could play, we could open for regular other bands, but, you know, we're, we're just kind of like another, you know, rock band. But in that scene, it seemed like we were, you know. Well, it's fresh. I, I, I like, think it, if yeah. it, it, it scratches an itch for hardcore and punk kids because at the time, speaking, Greg, you know, I'm, I'm older than you. All of these bands that you like now, what I consider radio rock trash, right? Like, uh, what is it three doors down is that the band three doors down (laughs) (laughs) that's jason with third eye eye yeah these we're not going to shame each other with music (laughs) so so these bands when i was in high school it was verboten to listen to these because this is the mainstream but here Mm -hmm. comes sensefield and farside and into another with music that sounds similar but it's kids that look like me or maybe Mm -hmm. is you know only three to five years older than me and they're playing in you know under 21 clubs and so it's accessible so i could listen to kind of that kind of music without selling out to the mainstream and like this is so i think what, what you're saying where the straight edge kids and the hardcore kids latched onto it i think that that's why and i've never really considered that before mm-hmm. is because like you're in our world and, yeah. and we don't have to we, we could still be different from all the other kids at school, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like we fit into that. It's like we found a group outside of the main thing and we were sort of from there, you know, via hardcore and all that. But yeah, I don't know. It just, it worked out. I think 
Yeah, and what were it, some of, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say the reason to believe stuff comes out on Nemesis Records, which is, you know, Big Frank. And this is like firmly rooted in, in the hardcore world. And then Revelation also, but it's like, you can see that it starts to expand. So I just wanted to throw the, the Nemesis Records connection yeah. in there with reason to believe in there. Jason, what do you got? Oh, I was just going to ask uh, either Chris or Rodney, what were some of the um, stranger shows that you found Sensefield playing just because of the Revelation Records label? Um, yeah, some of the, the mixed lineups. I don't know. I mean, the, the strangest shows were the ones we tried to get on our own. <laughs> okay. By far. <laughs> well, I think the one that always sticks out to me, and I've told this story a dozen times, but the one that was when we played our first tour, we, we were touring on that little blue self-release CD and we really didn't have any, any right to be out there touring because we, I mean, like what, you know, a handful of people had heard that, but we went out on tour and we played a show in um, Buffalo, which actually like, you know, Garrett from Texas reason and, and, um, and some of his friends, this guy, Glenn helped put on, and they paired us with um, Snapcase, mm-hmm. and Snapcase <laughs> was a huge hardcore band at that time, and that's and they're a Buffalo band, mm-hmm. so right. This is hometown. They had us headlining the show <laughs> over oh. Snapcase <laughs> in their hometown. It was one of those where everyone's fighting to not headline. Yeah, reverse one of those shows. So we were like begging them, God, do not make us go on after Snapcase. That is ridiculous. And Snapcase wouldn't hear it. They're like, no, you're playing last. And I'm like, all right. So we did. We played last. And as we're getting ready to play, we watch 90% of the room walking out the door. Clear out. <laughs> played to like a handful of really, really passionate fans. But, you know, it was just like, wow, that was just, that one was you, a little painful. You're yeah. watching the, you're watching the sea of the, the back of the heads. I'm like, that's still 500 people. That's still still 400 people you're up there playing. That's that's still a good show. If it was just us, that's a lot of people. So that's got to be the most depressing thing ever. uh, I didn't hear that story. I heard uh, I listened to a a podcast. Even if you're playing first and there's hardly anyone there, but they're trickling in, it's just the trickling (laughs) out is the rough. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I listened to a podcast with John and they were talking, he was talking about sick of it all um, and Sensefield playing together. And that, uh, and, and I was, I was surprised to hear that, but he also said that, um, <clears throat> that sick of it all was, was into Sensefield that they were the first to call what he heard. He said that was the first time he heard Sensefield described as an emo band. Um, well, first of all, I don't remember playing with sick of it all. I don't know if you remember that Rodney. I don't, yeah. John, I mean, let me just say, you know, bless his heart, but John sometimes got his facts a little mixed up okay, and remembered okay, things fair. weird. There is a there is a sick of it all sick of it all connection though, in that Armand from Sick of It All heard Sensefield. He um brought us to uh his roommate and friend, Steve Martin, who runs Nasty Little Man Publicity in New York, a really big PR firm. Okay. It was managing bands at the time. He said, Steve, you got to help these guys out, you know? Um, so we ended up working with Steve Martin as manager for a few years. Um, and we ended up making our career like about 
a hundred times more exciting. So that was a pretty big, that was a pretty big sick of it all influence. So maybe it was <laughs> okay, that, cool. Jason. Maybe it was. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it so. Was it was huge. on, uh, it was on this podcast called washed up email podcast. And it was oh, you know what? Interview. I have the the book that's transcribed. So I will. Okay, cool. Look and see. <laughs> yeah. Sorry uh, about that. Sorry. To get my I don't know. I mean, John could have said that he, he used to say some weird stuff sometimes. He was like, okay. what? We, we did that. Okay. Fair so, enough. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't want, and then we wanted a little backstory, but I figure, you know, the, what people call the Buddha record. Yeah. The self-titled. You know, we'll, we'll have a chance. I, I had a good show story, though. Please. Oh, please. What was that tiny little place in Philly? We played with oh, Aaron. Yeah, that bar. Pontiac? Uh, Pontiac. The Pontiac no. Grill? No, I don't think it was the Pontiac. It was even a smaller bar. Um, kind of by that Dobbs. Chinese restaurant. But we played one year, and there was like four people there. And then I think it was after the blue one, or maybe after... It was, we played there, um, it was probably on that same first tour, and we had brought our friend out. Have you ever heard the band Evergreen? It's an old emo band from I love Evergreen. I actually saw Sensefield and Evergreen together at the Costa Mesa Community Center in 94, 95. Yeah, that's cool. So this is Aaron, who was like the singer, Singer. guitar player from, we took him out on tour with us. He was a fun, fun guy, and uh. Anyways, we were at this, we played Philly, we played this bar. There was like zero, I mean, yeah, I guess four people there. Yeah. At the point we where him, we were just we like, had we had a guitar and sing in our, because there was nobody there. So he just played some of the songs. Yeah. And he sang some of the songs. And uh, I think what Rodney was going to say is the next time we came through, you know, Jason, um, God, I'm spacing on his last name now, but Jason is a Philly guy, um, worked for Hollywood Records for a while. And, um, he was a real mover and shaker, I think, in Philly mm. at the time and um, ended up, you know, working for majors and stuff. Uh, okay. Anyways, he promoted our next show through town and suddenly there was like a packed room and it was awesome. There was, just, there was just no warning, though. We were like, oh, we're going to play that crappy little place again. And like, you couldn't <laughs> get in. It's like, well, is it our night? Was it the right show? <laughs> wait, wait, is that where we went to like... We we were so like fuck that show because we thought it was suck. So we went to Atlantic <laughs> City or yeah. somewhere, or we were just like eating dinner, like taking our time, like yeah. We were like really- fuck it, we'll show up when we show up because who cares anyway? <laughs> four yeah. people, who cares? Yeah, and so we we showed up like an hour late, and it was like packed, and we're like, oh shit, you know that rules. Yeah. I saw you guys only. I only got to once, and it was at the Pontiac. But that was when you were, I think, in between. It was in between building and uh, Tonight and Forever. It was like 1999 with Juliana Theory. Yeah, I remember that show, yeah. Um, and that was like packed. Yeah, um, I remember that one. That was when we were touring with, yeah, Juliana Theory. Yeah, so that was cool. Yeah. But, uh, Can yeah, I get share one more my best show experience of all time? Please. Please. It was the Rev Showcase at CBGB's where Tinsfield and Whirlpool played. And... So I got to do both of my bands to, and it was sold out and it was so crowded. Like all the industry people were interested in us and they couldn't get in. So there was all these guys in suits standing out in the street and all these kids like in the show. And I mean, I was just, that was kind of for a a musician and just everything about it. It was just kind of like the ultimate night, probably one of my best music experiences. Was that the one? 
uh, I think I've seen the flyer. Was it like, yeah. was Texas is the reason on there? Yeah. Too? It was a rev showcase. Yeah. It was, yeah. Just it was during CMJ. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so like 95 or something like that. End of 90, like fall of 95, it would have been. And we had, had we just got back from Europe and I was going to start a tour with Whirlpool after that, I think. So yeah, it was, that was kind of the pinnacle, I think, for me. <laughs> yeah, that. Fl- I mean, I've seen that flyer, and it's just like, yo, every band is good. Like, like yeah. you know, what I mean? it's one one of those fives. I was like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be leaving to go grab a bite to eat at this yeah. show. You'd be wherever <laughs> you stood, you'd be planted there for the whole night. Yeah. Um. So, like I said, we. Uh. I guess we want to move on to you know kill yeah. for less. So, you. Jordan, I know, had told the story basically where he wanted to put out the two EPs. And then I think – I believe he told us you guys were like, okay, but we want to do something new. Yeah. And so this comes out first. So – but there are – Jason, did you ever find – did we ever get a tally of how many – or maybe you guys know offhand how many songs were redone for the Killed for Less record that were on the EPs? Do you know offhand? I could have. I don't counted. know offhand. I know there were definitely like the ones we thought were the better ones. Okay. So, yeah, it was like soft um, and found you and voice and sage. Yeah. I think those yeah. are on that. Yeah. Uh, I was gonna say there's at least probably close to a half dozen. Yeah. Because um, those those two self released EPs were like I don't even know if we sold. I don't even know if we printed like like 500 of each. It was very. Oh wow! You know, we just took them to Zed or or sold them at shows or, you know, had our friends buy them. So those are very obscure. Okay. And none of us, I don't know, we weren't really happy with the recordings. In retrospect, I kind of like them now, but at the time we all, we those songs were our favorites, you know, so we wanted to represent them like just, you know, with the full quality recordings and all that. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, we it's funny because when we talked to Jordan, um, he had mentioned that like, yeah, there's re-recordings and, you know, people people that are in bands and not in bands, there's always kind of, I think, a, a thing about re-recordings because as a fan, if it's the first version you hear, mm-hmm. there's a good chance that's what you're going to be attached to. Yeah. This is one of those weird situations where for some people, they're, this re-recorded version is the first one they hear and then – yeah. You know, the, the Buddha record comes out and then they're hearing the, you know, the originals. But yeah, those, we tried to those, keep it consistently confusing throughout our, uh, you know, <laughs> release, <laughs> you know, just, you know, just to keep people guessing. The, the so, first, the first blue EP, I mean, we recorded that pretty quickly after starting the band and getting like, a few prior, like we did it probably way too soon. We wanted just to get in the studio and record something because we were excited, but we hadn't been playing those songs very long. So, um, you know, some of some of those are. I mean, it's cool, but they're all kind of a little rough too. And we made some production choices we probably wouldn't have later. You know. Yeah, they're almost like yeah. demos, and and we'll you know we'll get to that. I actually like. I can't wait to hear about the recordings of those early stuff but we have to save that for the the other episode but (laughs) i i think it's cool that they they exist as like demo versions of the songs that came out on killed for less for you know lack of a better word 
So we should probably get on to kill for less time. Okay, so you guys went into (laughs) for the record to record killed for less, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Which is, I did a little bit of poking around. I actually recorded at, uh, that was the first studio, real studio that I ever recorded at when, um, when I was in my, you know, a band. And so I, I know how cool and like that, that room, it's, it's very interesting. And I looked to see like who was kind of the first hardcore bands to record there or like the first people. And from what I can tell, it was head first was the first bands that had really been in there to record stuff. So how did you guys discover or, you know, who told you to go in and record at for the record? That was Jordan. I think maybe Farside had recorded there. It was just like a place where a lot of his bands were recording at the time. And he's Mm -hmm. like, here, well, here's the studio, you know, it looks, let's go there. We didn't have, we didn't have any other ideas in mind. So we're like, sure, you know, why not? Um, And Jim Monroe ends up being kind of the main guy. Like he worked there when we started and he was our engineer. Mm -hmm. But then he, uh, the producer was, E. Yeah, the main guy or produce the main guy was E, right? Yeah, yeah. But Jim and Roe worked there, or because Jim ends up doing all these different records and and others. But that was, I think, that was the Jordan connection with Jim. And for the record, yeah, he was a nice guy too, but just kind of a regular rock guy. He didn't yeah. seem like he was into hardcore. And Craig over there at, at Craig Knapp at for the record, he had something to do with um, Killed for Less, right? I don't remember that name. Mm. He's e was the one engineer. I remember. Yeah. Yeah, He's, E. It lists E and Craig Knapp as engineers. Oh, okay. He was a yeah. character. Yeah. He, um, my recollection, I mean, my recollections of recording Killed for Less are going there after working an eight-hour day driving a truck, going there at night and working until like the wee hours of the morning and then getting back up and driving a truck and then doing it again and again. But I was happy to do it because I love recording. Yeah. But I, I just remember he, he really took, I think he took a liking to what we were doing. And he had, I think he saw potential in certain things. So like when it came time to do the first, he did the first proper mix of one of the finished tracks, which was Sage. He did it kind of by himself and then he unleashed it on us. And it was kind of, <laughs> he, you know, we had just but, done the whole recording and he said, all right, here, I got a new mix for you, you know, check it out. And it had like, he had like used the drums to trigger like, you know, synth drums he, and he all this stuff. It was, up, though. He, he had told us after he had listened to it a few times in his gold Cadillac at like three in the morning, like driving around the neighborhood. So <laughs> he had gotten to the perfect sort of journey production, you know, just <laughs> the biggest drums, you, you know, the eighties drums that just kind of eat the whole song. <laughs> So yeah, that was the setup. Yeah. So then he played it. And we were that was one of those oh no moments. We're just like, oh shit. You know, like, oh. <laughs> it was beautiful though. I mean Was it? I don't remember. I just remember being like totally like, oh my god, what are we yeah, gonna we, do? We were we were, you know, twenty years too young to appreciate it, but it was a masterpiece, I think. <laughs> I'm sure it was good, but uh <laughs> it was a little scary. Yeah. So we it sort of got toned down and we split the difference and Kill for that still ended up being kind of shinier than we had sort of. Yeah. Pictured. I feel like that's the story for me. That's the story of our existence is always being sort of bummed or like not totally satisfied with 
final product, you know. And that one, I think the raw tracks were really good, and I never, I think I never really loved the mix much. But we actually went in to remix that record years later, like Jordan said we could, but it didn't. We didn't really go through with it. We started and then kind of lost interest and just figured out, fuck it, it is what it is. I'd be up for that if I could re-record some stuff. <laughs> just vocals. <laughs> no. When I, I've just been sharing all the Sensefield songs on our Facebook page lately, just kind of chronologically, but just not real, you know. But I got the kills for less. And for me, it's just a little self-indulgent. I'm just like, that was a lot of me songs and like one take vocals where I didn't really, you know, like you could have maybe doubled that or, you know, it's just like, because there was all this attention and focus and at the time and you just, but I went through and, you know, I skipped paper cut and food I, like Heather's song felt kind of more like something we all did together but it was like the ones that we all were like were band creations like soft and found you like those feel like the memorable ones some of the I mean thank god I did Whirlpool and got you know some other thing going so I could you know I just felt like I kind of overdid I would have I would have let the band you know would have been more Chris songs, more John stuff, you know? So one of the things I noticed actually <laughs> is that the album doesn't, unless I'm missing it on my copy, doesn't list who's in the band, who does what. It doesn't. It's kind of, kind of mysterious. <laughs> no, yeah. Like there's a, there's a, the lyrics on the insert. Yeah. I think it's and on the back of the cover, isn't it? Thanks. No, oh, it does. But it doesn't list, it doesn't list who does what. It just says the players. And that I, sounds like us. Um, yeah. The Let's be up. super mysterious and just <laughs> totally annoy people. And yeah. Obscure for always the wrong reasons. Yeah, the, let's hide. Um, the cassette doesn't <laughs> even say the players. It has a thanks list. It says where it was recorded. And then it has a address in Redondo Beach where you could send a self-addressed stamped envelope <laughs> for correspondence. God, who's? Yeah, that's I weird. Think we heard early on that uh, about bands where, like, you know, one songwriter was getting all the money and the other guys were starving just to barely go, you know, basically hire guns. And it's like, you know, if you're not paying people to be there, you got to make them. It just seemed right. We just always did everything, you know, 20%, you know, split five ways. And so then it didn't matter so much who played what or songwriting credit and all that. It was like, Here's us. There's the band. You, you know, you'll probably figure it out if you go see. Well, it's yeah. like you studied your rock history because that tends to be like the big thing that can tear bands apart is when you start compartmentalizing. Like, well, you do this and you get do like you get this much of a percentage of publishing and this. Like, yeah. my you know, I've mentioned on here before. My all time favorite band is REM, mm-hmm. and they were famous for just. It was 25% each. That's you know, probably where we got it because uh, John was a huge yeah. REM fan. And I think he, that might've been one of the places where it's like that kept them together the whole time. Keeps everybody happy. Exactly. Cause Peter, yeah. Peter Buck had said like, you know, he's like, I studied, you know, I read a bunch of rock bios, you know, when we started the band, I kind of knew like, this is what tears bands apart. He's like, and who's to say that like, a person that maybe isn't writing on the songs, but they're driving the van all the time and they're loading, you know, mm-hmm. doing this, like 
you know, everybody's usually contributing in some way. So they just divided it equally and it kept. Yeah. That was the good and the bad of Sensefield is we were very democratic, (laughs) which is great in a way, but it also makes it so sometimes nothing ever moves forward or gets done. Yeah. Because there's always one person that's like, man, I'm not into that. And you're just like, all right, well, that's where I can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's so what that I thought a, too. That was a concert. It was always somebody who wasn't enthused about an idea. And so it never, you know. Yeah. Yeah. In the early days, it was kind of a train wreck. When stuff started to happen for us, everybody got more on board. It was like, yeah, we want to do that. But yeah, early on, it was like, what kind of album cover? What kind of, you know, everything was just so tedious. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, w- I had a question for you, vocal wise. Who who is in the background for Blue Glass Man, and what is oh. the story behind that? You're talking about the weird thing in the middle. Yes, I am. Can I I finally have a chance to defend that. So I just heard like you know like you're at the, you're at the fairgrounds and you hear the speaker voice, but you can't really hear it. It's just echoey. Mm-hmm. I just wanted that. Like I didn't want it to be, uh, you know discernible because it was there was all kinds of other weird stuff going on you know it was just kind of a pink floydy thing or whatever but but our friend billy got into it and it was shakespeare just some random chunk of shakespeare but he just oh okay he just got so into it everybody was kind of like well it has to sort of be in there i guess because i wanted it buried in effects and just echoey and like just just the sound of a voice not so it's a lot more specific than I had intended. I don't, so think, listen. I don't remember. I didn't even, I, first of all, I completely forgot that it existed and I'm kind of mortified that it does, but, <laughs> um, but I didn't know that was how, what it was supposed to sound like. I just remember like, I forget, does he have kind of a Scottish accent in it? Yes, yeah, he, he does. He's got a full on Scottish thing. Yeah. I think he has Scottish heritage and he could lapse right into a Scottish accent. Like nobody's business. He was just like really? a friend of the band. It was pretty high quality. I mean, it was nonsense, but it was really well done. So at least, you know, there's that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's so hard. It's hard to make out, but this goes back in a sense field existed in its own bubble. At this point, we were still totally like just doing shit that made no sense sometimes, but uh, that's one. That one's one's best left unsolved. I think. (laughs) (laughs) Fair fair enough. But, uh, so a second ago, you talked about doing, uh, or you talked about decisions for the artwork. What can you tell us about the um, the Gavin Oglesby painting for the cover of this record? Was that a concept that he came up with, or is that something that the band? Y- did? Yeah, his the stuff he did for us, this and building, are totally his concept. And I can't remember exactly how we came to work with him, but um, he must have come. I don't know if he came to us or we went to him, but I mean, I was familiar with him from seeing him at like punk shows and I remember his he was famous for doing leather jackets he did amazing artwork on the back of leather jackets like minor threat and faith and stuff like that and so I knew who he was and then but I didn't know he was like a fine artist or something and um you know when he wanted to do it I mean I know John and I were familiar with him I don't think anybody else in the band was but we were pretty excited and he just did his own thing totally with no input from us did he hear I, the record before doing the artwork? I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah. Okay. I think that's probably where he got the influence, but um, yeah, no, he did. I, I know he did he heard that It wasn't like he just did it and here's some artwork. Yeah. He, yeah. He did it fits the to the music or like based on what he had heard. The artwork to me is very, 
almost like timeless and melancholy. It looks like a, a painting of someone's like first dance at a wedding. I, I, I always pictured it as like, it, it makes me feel not, not sad when I look at it, but like it does have a very somber look to it. That's what I got out of it. I know that that's not like probably the intention, but as a 17 year old boy who's seeing this for the first time and used to maybe seeing like crazy action shots on records, I saw this and it looked very, um, like I said, somber, but also mature. And, and I always appreciated that about it. It stood out to some of, uh, against some of the other stuff that was coming out at the time for me. I feel like I remember Jordan telling us that some of the other bands on Revelation were like, what's the deal? How come Sensefield gets to have this kind of fucking artwork and we have to do these you know, shitty photographs? And <laughs> I was going to say, because it's like, all right. Like, I, yeah. I think that's my one thing to this day. I will I'll never forgive the band for not using my artwork for all of our stuff. We had an in-house artist. I have hundreds and hundreds of artwork. I, I ended up liking it. But that was heartbreaking for me, especially in my 20s, like, uh, you know, because I was actually going to art school and it, you know, it, it didn't fit at the time or whatever. But uh, in retrospect, I'm like, we paid a lot of money for paintings and I'm like, guys, I had, I mean, we could have just, there was a lot to choose from. I could have come up with something. Yeah. Rodney, did you end up doing artwork for Whirlpool? We'll get to that. But did you create the artwork? No. I got I got through one and that fell apart too. It just wasn't meant to be. I I don't blame anybody. It just it wasn't the time. But uh, do you guys know? I'm where, still going to hold a grudge against Hensfield. I think <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> do you guys know where the original of this painting exists now? I'm not sure, but I think someone does have it. Yeah, like I have some. I have some of the the building paintings. And, uh, and to be honest. They're beautiful, and I once he did the building album, I wanted all our records to just look like that. I thought, yeah, just make like Smith albums, just have them all be, mm. you know, just that different painting of whatever, something from the album. But yeah, yeah, it was a bit jarring for me as a fan when I got Tonight and Forever, and I'm like, oh, it's it's not, there's not a Gavin Oglesby painting on it, you know, like yeah, uh, for a lot of years in between the two. Consistent sense of like you see a little bit of a pattern and then now nah, that that wasn't what they were going to do. So, yeah, we just that would have made like, too much sense. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this this album comes out. Do you remember when about it came? I mean, it says 94. Was it like early in 94 or later? Any recollection? I don't I couldn't find. No, um, not really. I, I don't remember a, a release time. Um, that was a. That was a pretty happy blur in my life there when, you know, the album and the tours were starting and, you know, we were doing more and more just band stuff, less, like I was actually able to take off work and go on tours and yeah, it was, the late nineties were pretty amazing. So when this came out, who did you, who did you all tour with on this record? We did a headlining tour on our first tour, didn't we? Did we just go out by ourselves on our first? Yeah, is is the is that the first tour we did where we took the Rev van? I think the, so. The child molester van. 
Yeah. <laughs> Still a white, nice white van. Uh, yeah, you, you guys, any of you, anybody ever seen the old Rev van? It was I like, I don't remember it. It was like you know, a conversion van, one of those ones from like the 70s. Yeah. yeah. All the windows blacked out. Oh. <laughs> and literally like the night before we left for tour, like we packed up the van and I remember going to McDonald's with John and we got pulled over like immediately by the cops because <laughs> it looked so suspicious. You know, it was like full on like pedophile van um and our last experience was the reason to believe tour which was in the bronco so the red van was like well you know we've upgraded i mean this is <laughs> i guess this is how touring in a band is it's pretty scary but you know was it a white bronco no yeah, okay <laughs> I was it was actually, 1994 too yes. <laughs> right time period I was actually on the freeway in front of OJ when he was running. No, we we played in Simi Valley that night and me and Debbie were coming up and the freeway cleared out and people were holding signs. And I kind of wanted to slow down, like to get in front of him, but I'm like, but we were going to be late for the show, you know, traffic. Wow. Wow. I was at a show at old world in Huntington beach that night. It was like, ignite and excessive force and i remember people talking about it like oj's on the run but of course we didn't have our phones in our hands to like keep up on it it was just like something people were talking about that was a real night i was glad to get out of that one (laughs) so i see on the um on the thanks list for this record um i see sam i am uh did you guys play a lot of uh shows with sam i am around that time maybe or well i guess i guess we used to play at a place called the Macondo in like East Hollywood um, on Melrose. That was like the underground pre-emo, whatever the hell that was back then, place to play. Like where all the like early emo bands like Evergreen and all those kind of bands played. And um, we played, a, we did play a show there with Sam I Am. And is that, is that when we went on tour with them? Ronnie, I'm do you remember? Sure. I mean, maybe that's because we did do a tour with Sam, I am. I think, but they were for, they would come down here for those shows from. Yeah, but did we thank them because we had just toured? Because it could have been that we had just done that tour with them. Oh, well, yeah. I'm thinking of later shows, but man, what was it like, Milwaukee? It's all a little fuzzy, but we did do a tour with them, which I think was a lot of fun. They helped Um, us out a lot throughout getting the shows i think and then scott was super good friends with them yeah they were just a band we constantly crossed paths with you know and got got you know booked with and stuff and that the crowds were you know there there was a lot of crossover because those kids liked us and you know it was all kind of melodic punk yeah yeah it makes sense like same thing with you know i know later on texas is the reason like you know just kind of made sense the band's Mm-hmm. Uh, playing together so when this when this one when this record came out did you start to get because i know rodney mentioned the cmj show which would have been in between this and building yeah starting to get notice from like l- bigger labels that were outside of you know the pantheon of hardcore post-hardcore yeah i think i mean definitely once i don't remember when it came out in 94 but once 95 hit we did our first tour of um, Europe, which was a brutal tour, but a lot of fun. But 
<laughs> very, very punk rock, very low budget. Um, we had got, when we got back, that's when, uh, we, that's right. We had, we signed a publishing deal with this guy who had also signed, he was busy signing all the bands. Like as he signed like Sam, I am and a bunch of other bands. And it was a way to kind of get some cash. You know, they gave us an advance. It was like, you know, to us, it was a lot of money at the time. It's really, it wasn't that much, but, but it really helped out. Anyways, the guy who signed us there kind of helped um, navigate the whole, like the label interest we were getting at the time, like at the end of 95, because everybody was getting signed then, right? You know, they were busy signing up all the kind of alternative rock bands and whatnot, because mm-hmm. that was what was happening. So we got swept up in that whole craze. It was an exciting time. I mean, I, I we talked about this. Um, oh, gosh. I, oh, well, I, I was doing an interview for another podcast uh, with – uh, Scott McLeod from Girls Against Boys and Soulside. Yeah. And just talking about how, what an exciting time it was for a fan because you had all these great bands that were, you know, their records were getting out places where you could actually, you know, easily buy them no matter where you lived. And, um, but even just being in a band at that time had to be exciting because you're watching all your peers, you know, yeah. rising tide lifts all ships, you know? Yeah. And I remember girls against boys being pursued at the same time we were and their, their they were kind of that their courting process was like notorious. Like the, the lengths people were going to try to sign that band at that time, <laughs> um, flying all over the world, just, you know, like just trying to get them because they were the hot shit at that time yeah he told uh, little, little did we know that you little did we know you're supposed to just just juice that as long as you can like they'll just that, keep giving you so, as long yeah, as you so like, make a decision <laughs> the fall of 95 was was a crazy time because we were talking to a bunch of different labels and kind of flying all over can, the place can we go back just there was a more wholesome time though just before when we signed with Rev, that was a whole thing too. Like we got bigger on Rev and there were starting to be more and more people at our shows. And then we make fun of the tour van, but our buddies' bands didn't have a record or tour van or, you know, like it was huge to us. We'd been playing these crappy clubs in LA and, you know, then the Macondo and these other shows started to pick up. And then, so, you know, for a while, Rev being signed to Revelation was like, we kind of felt like we had made it, you know, at least the first step we were like, that was, you know, it took a while to, you know, get it grew for a while before the major label thing came up, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That, and that's, I think, <laughs> one of the things in context, like you said, you had to keep in mind that even though this catalog-wise is before the two EPs, um, you know, you had, it was a steady, it was a steady climb, it seemed like. I mean, I well, can You have this crazy experience that's so out of the ordinary that, you know, makes everything else more you know mundane but then just before that we'd had already had a pretty cool experience you know driving across country in the summertime and pretty much a lot of just drinking beers and playing music and hanging out with people like it was we were like super fortunate to be able to do that so kind of a dream comes true and then another huge thing just comes and you're like you know it almost dwarfs the first you know it was it was amazing the 90 late 90s that roller coaster ride was that was something else yeah the camp because you can't really yeah we don't want to like gloss over the fact that like it wasn't like you know you put out this the 
EPs and all of a sudden, you know, the, the Rev era was obviously very important. For and them. smaller, but yeah. pretty positive the whole way up. I think, you know, things got scarier with the major label stuff, but the Rev thing didn't get as far, but it was, you know, it kind of just grew in a pretty positive direction. Those were like probably better times in that there wasn't, that was before there was all this like inner pressure to like, Oh my God, now we're like, you know, we have to get big and we have to make it and all this shit. Like our lives are depending on it. It used to just be, that was what we did. Cause it was fun. We were in the, you know, it was just purely about the music and, and then suddenly you have all this pressure on you. So those were kind of nice. Kind we of, were out ahead. We were kind of ahead of the game doing the rev days. And then it's, we sort of fell behind with the major labels trying to catch up to an expectation. So it doesn't matter how much you have. It's just, as long as you think you have a lot, you know, you're good. Yeah. Um, yeah success is relative, really. I mean, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. So promotion-wise, I wanted to ask about the video that uh, for found you. What you can remember from that. Darren Doan did that one. It's a nice video. It looks awesome. But uh, what do you remember from shooting that? I know we shot it at the house Rodney was living at in Long Beach at the time. No, that's not that Rodney. Huh? No, found you was the cool oh. one. That, that's probably about my favorite video experience ever. He just had a room, that room full of the smoke machine. It didn't matter what we looked like. We just got to pretend we were playing and, and it looks good. Like that was probably my best video experience, you know, end result experience of making it everything. The soft video as a whole. Uh, All right, yeah. I gotta, I'm glad you remember because I don't remember anything about it. For a <laughs> the soft video could be left unsolved too. That could be another <laughs> one. <laughs> but wasn't that Darren Doan again? No, that was that was Burger's friend from L.A. Right? Oh, Darren, Darren Doan was. I I don't know where he was from, but he was he was doing videos like because we got the artsy guy Burger's friend the second time. Remember? Yeah, no, I don't. But but yeah. do you? Yeah, it was a train wreck. Another one. Yeah. Well, I just did they push that video to to MTV or to Fuse or I I don't know if Fuse was around then, but uh, I don't remember. Okay. I know that I don't remember what they did with the video. I know that at that time Jordan was getting lots of music placements on like surf videos and skateboarding videos and things like that. Like remember that was a thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know about the video though. Do you, Rodney? No. I think as as time went by and the whole video thing well, it got to where it didn't matter for a while there. I don't know. But yeah, I don't remember. It was like there was a period where they were super important, then they weren't important, and then I think they're now important again, maybe, but yeah. I think we were in that sort of in between where, you know. It seemed like that time period where they were super important, but then it was yeah. also where do you air something? You know, yeah. I think there was yeah. a lot of that stuff. Like, I mean, great videos. Jordan might have been pushing because I think at that time Revelation was kind of making an attempt to be. You know, they were signing some bands and they were kind of making an attempt to be like. That's you know, right. They were pushing to be a bigger yeah, label. Yeah, new music. You know, player in the in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he actually even had people on staff maybe that did actually, um, you know, try to place those things. Yeah, like the first oh, one I remember classic. seeing on MTV of like a Rev video was uh, Shades Apart when they, the Tainted Love cover. And that was no, yeah. 
around that same time. And it did seem like, you know, with, with that and with you guys, and then eventually Texas is the reason, like it kind of did seem like they were, Rev was maybe going for that, you know, to kind of ratchet things up a bit. Yeah, well, they definitely were in that period. The side project, Whirlpool got a video out of it. So, you know, they were making videos for everybody that you know, wasn't, wasn't necessarily like a criteria. Yeah, but that's that's a pretty funny video still. I don't. I mean, I'm not ashamed of that one. If you ever want to watch the Whirlpool video, that is it on YouTube. What's what song is it for? Blinding Light. Okay. Back to Sensefield, though. Sorry. Oh no, no. The Rev has a YouTube channel, and that's where I saw the Sensefield videos, and I bet it's on there also. Okay, cool. It's me just being a goofball when I'm like 26 or something. But so to you know, Killed for Less was a record for me that I kind of like you went back retro- retroactively, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, um, it was cool to re right. yeah, it was cool to revisit though. And like, um, you know, for, for this and realize how many of the songs I actually remembered. Cause it's one of those things where when I would play sense field, I would usually reach for building or, or actually the two, uh, following LPs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I look at it sort of like when, when I listen to the beach boys, I'm usually going to put it on like pet sounds but mm-hmm. you put on all all summer long and it's got like some bangers on there too. You got, you know, yeah. I get around, you get all, all these other good tracks. And that's kind of how I view this is like, to me, it's like hinting at what I believe was the greatness in, I, in the building. I feel like Kill for Less was kind of like, we had to have a feast. And then we were like, you don't really need a feast. You just need really interesting stuff. And so then building was more like, we just, boiled it down to like just do the cool epic interesting stuff and not i don't know it just for me it just felt a little self-indulgent the kill for less thing it was like you know but you're still, right. I think you're still figuring things out probably you're yeah well that's the, the big difference for me between those two records it's pretty glaring is kill for less is still us existing in this little world of ours being in our cave writing mm-hmm. music totally without like any kind of input from the outside world building is the result of us having now toured a couple times gotten out there gotten you know tighter gotten kind of you know kind of gotten back a little more of the punk rock as opposed to like the like the pink floyd side of sensefield and that's why those records differ i think so much and for me just creatively like because i started doing the whirlpool record then and i wrote a lot of the stuff for building but I'd really let go. Like, I mean, full disclosure, I think Chris pretty much played all the guitar parts. I mean, I might've wrote stuff, but it just sounded so clean the way he did everything. And then I didn't mess with any of John's vocal stuff. You know, it was just, he did all his layers. And so I felt like I stepped away and let those guys do their thing. And it was more like I gave in the part I, I was supposed to, and they got to do, and then, you know, that was right when Berger and Scott were at their height of like, playing as many things as they could, you know, in each song. Like, so the rhythm was just this, always this like super interesting, you know, thing going on in the background. And so for me, you know, you don't know at the time because you get all this attention and you don't appreciate other people. But now when I look back, I think that's why that record's so cool. Cause I was, you know, I just put in enough and then went did something else. And Chris and John mostly just, you know, there's just so much beautiful stuff going on on there. Yeah, I mean, it's building is like I've talked about before. Like it's like a desert island 
record for me. Like <laughs> even just not not even talking about Rev, it's just such a uh, to me it's like one of those perfect albums. And I wasn't there for the pain of recording it, so I would just get new, you know, updates from Chris, and it's like, oh man, what's all that? You know, there'd be new layers and cool stuff going on, and it wasn't like, you know, so for me, it just it worked out, and I'm so glad I didn't try to get involved or, you know, because the Killerless days and the early Sensible days. I mean, full disclosure, there was a bit of a power struggle between John and, and Rodney over who should be the voice and face of Sensefield, and that's why you get a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until later, once we'd started touring, that it got everybody's roles got a little more defined. Yeah. I had this early idea of, like, I don't know, I, I had this, like, Fugazi idea in my head that we were going to do this back and forth. Because we had, like, like, Soft and Ideity. We had a couple of old songs. And I, that's what I really wanted to do, you know, mostly John. And then we would do some of those trade-off kind of things. Right. right. But, but then I think, you know, I blame Kurt Cobain, but like, you know, it was just one guy, the whole thing around him and all of his songs were catchy and cool. And, it, you know, it didn't really matter who else was playing. Right. And so, you know, your ego and you start to get like, oh, I could just be everything. I can sing. And, and uh, so, yeah, that whole it was just so much artier, I think, or not if that's the right word, but with when it was more Chris and John and Scott and Berger, it was, Sensefield was really this interesting creative thing. And when it got to be a little heavy on the Rodney Sellers, it just got to be, you know, you know, I got to do whatever I want and in a lot of ways and just, you know, didn't pick the best. <laughs> was, uh, was John like a trained vocalist um not, not at all not at that point i don't know if anybody's ever heard the reason to believe demo <laughs> somebody just approached me recently about re-releasing that i'm like i thought i haven't responded but i'm like god i know it is rough. <laughs> i mean god had never sung for real before other than like you know in the shower and like some of the vocals are just brutally like rough you know and got a little better next time and the next time. So, you know, it was, that was totally like, he always fancied himself as a singer, you know, because that's kind of, he oh, always he wanted to be a front man. It. He but, took it like a craft. I mean, he didn't get, but he had a, he had a juicer he brought, he had like a steamer he put over, you know. It, yeah. The, I would hear the things the, about like the Ben you know, Gay, like it, there was a whole, there were a warm ups. I mean, and we used to make fun of him. And in retrospect, I'm like, man, he was really serious about the craft. Like, he took what he had and did it, made it as good as he possibly could, I think. Yeah, you know, um, there's a story uh, I just read. Josh yeah, Josh Grabell, did you read that story? Yeah. Um, ahead, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to find it right now, but he was talking about when Sensefield played in his parents' basement. And um, I John, remember that name. Josh, he trust, did Trust Kill Records. Trust Kill Records. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm. I don't. Was it basically, he, was a, he he said he borrowed. Uh, I guess he did. He go into his. He went into his parents' bedroom. Up, yeah, and he said afterwards the whole room smelled like Tiger Bomb. <laughs> and and he yeah. and he basically warm did the whole warm up with just Josh in the room, 
and was like <laughs> singing all of the songs, like belting them out in his parents' bedroom and for like yeah. 30 minutes warming up and Josh was yeah. just like, oh, yeah. what is happening right now? That's <laughs> yeah. so wild. Because there's this story in the, anti- in the antimatter comp too, where Norman uh, mentions something about John using something on his throat that smelled like bubble gum. Well, like, that tiger bomb or yeah, what? tiger bomb. That was his thing. Familiar with vocal warm-up stuff, but some of that stuff's you know some pretty ridiculous sounds. People, you know, and he'd be doing it close to the club, and Chris would be like, "Dude, just take one more street, take another turn." <laughs> you know, and yeah. Yes, I know that one. You know, the kids are in line. They're going to see you like, before the show. But, yeah, he he was all it. Like, anything, ginger. He was make, he'd make special drinks, tea and stuff. You know, it was like he, he was just – he knew he had some – you know, he didn't have the biggest lungs and strength and stuff. So, I think he tried as much as he could to, like, you know, save what he had. It's cool. I, like, I just – I like the stories, you know, someone who's attempted to sing – yeah, uh, in bands, I like hearing about like warm up stuff because you'll talk yeah. to some people who just have some people just have a gifted voice and they don't need to warm up or or whatever or they or they stop, you know, maybe worrying. Too. I remember I asked Jonah from far, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I said, what do you do for warm up? And he's like, I he's like, I don't really anymore. I just kind of go out and yeah. wing it and just, you know, go with the feeling and everything. And uh but I, I, I just love the story. I love always the bubble gum story always stuck with me. And then when, when I saw yeah. Josh Truskill post that, I said, so was it, it was tiger bomb. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And solved a and 25 Chris, year mystery. For me. I think Chris kind of discovered John cause he was doing a demo for a uh, recording class, I think. And, uh, John was the one kid that kind of sang more than streamed among all because screaming was just the standard, you know, for everybody. So I think Chris discovered him and then he did the demos and then reason to believe. And, and then he, you know, he thought, well, I could do it. You know, he started taking it seriously and he got, you know, really good at it. Absolutely. Yeah. He used to be just the punk kid hanging out at the other band's practices, you know, drinking a 12 pack and, Fucking around and he he'd get up on stage. He was kind of like the uh, the Boston's had the dancing guy, right? Yeah, he'd yeah. do like at the ska shows. He'd get up on stage and dance and sing. And then he started taking it seriously, and it's pretty intense. Yeah. yeah, it's just like you know, I can't like the his vocals. Uh, like I just, I just always like that was you know one of as. They, they they grab you right away. I think when you when you hear the first time hearing the band, yeah, like immediately like the the vocals and then of course obviously you know the songwriting and the playing. But you know the first thing you hear is his voice was very unique. I felt like um, in a way it reminded me of Dexter Holland. Has he ever gotten that comparison before? Like the Offspring, but it's like it's like a bad. I, I, I've seen it the other way. I saw a review, I swear it was in Flipside or Maximum Rock and Roll, and it just said, The Offspring, picking up where Reasonable Believe left off. Yeah, because the first album that's on <laughs> Nemesis, yeah. to me, yeah. sounds like... And that first album is amazing, I think. It's very good, yeah. Yeah. And, it's, and it's, I was like, yeah, I, no, I would have went that way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it literally just sounds like kind of like Reason to Believe. Like yeah. both, both singers have a like 
they always go for like the highest possible note they can hit, like to almost out of their range to where there's that sound, like where they're just straining to hit that the highest, loudest note they can. I think that's like the like definitely always, like sound. always sharp, never flat. You always want to push it. You never want to be too low. <laughs> yeah, you'd yeah. rather have that little bit of like I think did so well. He'd have that little little bit of grit at times. Yeah, just enough, and um, you know, I just Is uh, it? yeah. What I like, I'm discovering later that he reminds me of, is it Leonard from the Dickies? I can't he, did, well, he did like Leonard a lot from the Dickies. The reason to believe stuff, he gets that, that, that tenor kind of thing going. That the, I love that the Dickies <laughs> where you can't tell what he's saying at all. It doesn't matter. It's just da 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 You know, it has that yeah. sound or whatever. He got we, were listening to a lot of, we were listening to a lot of Dickies before we recorded that record, working as janitors together, John and I. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Before the Reason to Believe record? Yeah, before we were trying to raise money to go on that first tour. <laughs> and um, we used to listen to, we were listening to a ton of Dickies, I remember that. And I think that's probably where that seeped in. And that's what we used that as inspiration for some of the songs on that record, like the more melodic ones, you know, which is a little more hardcore. Nice. Anyways, see, no, because we lo- like this is this is our bread and butter. We love <laughs> stuff like it's this. True. As, like I said, as a Sensefield fan, um, I'm so honored that you guys came on to talk to us today, and I'm um, you know look forward to hopefully being able to connect for uh, the other stuff because building like big one for me. Really excited. Yeah. Um, so one of the things we do, you're you're both new to the pod, is we go we do a thing called hot tracks. Mm-hmm. Where we just have everybody, hosts and guests, uh, pick. I, I guess a, you could say a favorite can just be a favorite song on here, but maybe mm-hmm. it's your favorite because you loved the writing of it or the recording or playing it live or you know hearing it back to this day on the record or whatever. So mm-hmm. you know we do uh, we call it hot tracks. So we will put you in the hot seat. So Rodney, do you have a hot track from? Uh, Killed for Less. From Killed for Less, I'd probably pick Soft, I guess. It's probably my favorite. Okay. And it did have a video, which I I don't know. I didn't even know that. Yeah, I mean, somebody kind of fixed up the video, so it's not as painful as it used to be. So it's okay. There's a decent video Rev has out. But Okay. All right. All right. We got yours, Chris. Do you, or, uh, well, actually, we'll save. We'll go. I'm going to go Javier. Yeah. Uh, easy for me. No brainer. It's found you. Um, as, uh, you know, finding this uh, and not knowing what the song is about, but really when I was like a teenager, especially like to me, love and, and like finding your girlfriend was like the most important thing in the world. Right. And so I always, the refrain on that, the found you, the chorus, like, I just was always so fixated on that of like, yes, like I found that perfect (laughs) moment and that perfect girl and the perfect relationship that's just going to make me totally whole. But I just love the way that he sings that line. You know what I mean? Like holding out the, um, the notes and it's, it's like kind of, buried in the middle of the album if you're listening to it on cd or you know um cassette wise it's the last song 
Where is it? Now I got to look at where it falls. It's like in the kind of in the middle of side one too. So it's not like the first or the third track, you know, which is kind of usually like where the, on on like the bigger major label stuff where the hits lie. It's like, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's kind of a deep cut almost, but it's also such a, I, I think generally a fan favorite and that song just kind of always has stuck with me ever since the first time I heard it. I will uh, chime in and say that's also my nice uh, hot track, which you and I usually don't. We don't agree. <laughs> don't agree. <laughs> but uh, I just think to me, it's like the one that really jumps out. There's a couple contenders for sure. Um, so I was, you know, kind of just going back and forth. And there's some p- bit of pretension in me that always hates picking like the song that had the video, you know, or whatever. Mm. Like you don't want to necessarily pick the single. You want to be the guy like, no man, the, the demo B side, whatever is the best, but I don't know that, that song. I, I love the urgency of it. I love yeah. the, you know, yeah. the, how it, like builds up and, and uh, it's just such it, a great freaking song. It, it was pretty heavy at both of the, you know, memorial shows. That was the last song we played and, you know, everybody got up and sang the end of the song. So mm-hmm. that was yeah, pretty good. That was always a good set closer. Yeah. yeah that, I mean, it was before, but then when we did it, those shows, and it just, you know, the whole crowd, just whoever wanted to come up, came up. And uh, yeah, it, it was intense. I think that stretch of found you, Futon, and Voice that closes out side one of the record or the cassette. Um, I think that that's a, such a good listen, <laughs> like just those three songs. If that was say a, like an EP, it would be like sp- perfect EP <laughs> because that, that stretch right there, there's like not a dull moment of those three songs. Right? <laughs> that's just a, something I was, I, I noticed when I was listening to it in the past week is that stretch of the album is, is immaculate. Yeah, yeah, voice order. was going to be one of my contenders too, and I, it was it was tough, but I went with my gut. The song orders on the albums was another thing that we, you know, we were good at just making confusing and doing it probably not the way you should or whatever. Just putting the good songs at the end. And <laughs> yeah, we didn't talk about the drumming much. The drumming for that that intro, that drum roll for "Found You" is just that's awesome. Yeah, I love yeah, it. That, that was exciting. That was like torture for Scott. Like, cause when we do that song live, sometimes we'd really draw out that whole thing and he would be like about to pass out, like just like <laughs> trying to keep that thing going for like a Especially minute. Especially if he did it as a set closer. Yeah. Yeah, we weren't, we weren't very nice to him on some of those songs. He wrote himself into a corner on a lot of things though. He, he didn't exactly just take on like the easy straightforward beat. Yeah, he had those. There were those fills that were like, "Oh my God, is he going to make it?" And we'd all look over, like, "Will he make it through this fill?" Yeah, so yeah it's, the drumming's right on the You can kind of hear that, even though I feel like on the record, like it just yeah, like, it's some of that made it onto the record. Like those ones are like, "Oh my God, is he going to?" Oh, he made it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's where there are a lot of the urgency. Like, yeah, of course it comes from the the vocals and stuff, but I do think that the the drums kind of contribute to that that urgency. Um, yeah. on the song. Chris described it as like a train going downhill. Like once you start a sense field set, it's kind of like, okay, here it goes. It's probably going to be really good, but you know, we're not a hundred percent sure and there's no break. So hopefully. 
Jason. Yo. Hot track me. I'm going with nothing between us. It's oh, got like that. I like that one too. It's got that like cool <laughs> guitar intro and this kind of rocket from the crypt vibe. It's upbeat. And then it breaks into that soaring, like pretty chorus where John's voice matches it. And then it's got the stick clicks into him saying, I love this. Yeah. And like, I love that sort of stuff. So that's later in the record. Yeah, that was one of those ones that was like a half Rodney, half me. That was the the riffy part was a Rodney part. The chorus part was one of my parts. So that was like some of my favorites. Cool. They take that leg of the two. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorites too. It it matches up. I mean, it, it it shows the power of the band in that one song. I I, I think it's so. like it changes enough to throw you off, but it doesn't lose the song. It like it's weird, but you're still you know like that's my favorite. You know, sort of interesting, but still you know catchy. I guess. I feel that. Yeah. All right, and then finally, Chris. I'm going to take a total left turn here and pick probably the least popular song in the record, but as a shout out to Scott is one from the other side, just cause I really like his Tom Tom beat on there. <laughs> and I used to always like playing that one live. It really, his drumming on that one really came across. And um, I thought that one was really cool. It's a really super basic song, but um, I don't know why it was, I think it was because it was so easy that it was like very comfortable to play live. Yeah. Um, and the drumming is really cool. Awesome. We yeah, like left. Uh, I like the I like the left turn answers. To be honest with you, I always I always appreciate the other. Um, yeah, uh, Leia is probably the best one of those of all time for us. My favorite is. We'll talk about that one on the next. I was gonna say I don't want to. I was about to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but, jump in, <laughs> and I was like, I wish we. I just wish we would have done more of that. Uh, my advice to any band is don't do home recording. Just let one guy write everything, but you have to learn it all together in one place. Cause I feel like our best stuff was when we, we had to figure it out together, you know, so much of the, for me, the really inspiring stuff. Nice. Well, both, both of you guys, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, and, uh, people, like I said, people are going to be excited to, to hear this. Um, because even though like we talked about, you know, building like a lot of people, this is their, this yeah that's our favorite so yes i don't want to seem like we're um like under underestimating the the amount of love that people have for for the kill we're really we're really building it up for the building show though so i know <laughs> hey, i'm cool with it and then i wanted to ask this 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 won't be in the recording but i kind of
I'll request our... Listen, uh, that quote from Josh Grabel, a.k.a. Josh Trustkill. Is that how you say his last name? I never knew. It's Grabel. Grabel? Yeah. Because remember, do you remember the Rick to Life voicemail that went on? He called him Josh Gabrielle. No, but <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard. I've yeah. never heard that. Josh, Josh had shared it on one of the groups once. He was wow. like trying to get signed to Trust Kill, but I digress. Okay, so listen, Josh Grabel. This was the summer of 1994, and Copper from Buffalo played also. The Sensefield guys showed up to my house early, and John Bunch needed a private place to do vocal warm-ups. I showed him to my parents' bedroom and left him there to go entertain the other bands. A little while later, I go to check on him, and the room reeked of Tiger Balm because he had rubbed it all over his throat. John then stood there and screamed his heart out for 30 minutes while I watched in awe by myself, starstruck, as this giant man sang all my favorite songs to me. And the flyer is Saturday, August 20th, 1994, One Nature, Sensefield, Canon, and State of the Nation. Canon, like C-A-N-O-N? It says says C-A-N-N-O-N. Uh, so I could have been, honestly, could have been the vegan straight edge band because I think that One Nature was a vegan straight edge band. And it is very indicative of the time to have a mixed band bill like that. But this is in Josh Grabel's parents' basement uh, in Trenton Falls, New Jersey. Nice. I'm going to assume that Killed for Less was out by then. Yeah, probably. Maybe. Summer. And and then uh, Scott Torgerson, who is, I forget what bands he was in. He's from the Santa Barbara area and says that he saw um, Sensefield and about four songs in, he was rocking out and banging on a cymbal with his hand. The cymbal was cracked and he slit his wrist. Blood was flying everywhere and he had to call 911 and he had to mop up a bunch of blood. That's a wild story. I can't imagine seeing John Bunch bleeding all over the fucking place. Yeah, right. At a show. So one of the other things we t- talked about in the interview, Jason had mentioned uh, the sick of it all. Yeah. Uh, Sensefield yeah, kind of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm reading this from the Anthology of Emo, Volume 2. It's a really cool series of books. There's two of them. Uh, the website anthologyofemo.com. I guess you can still order the books. I don't know if they're in print or not. I got them last year. So this is a trans, these are just transcripts of washed up emo podcast. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a, I think volume one has Norman Brannon on it uh, from Texas is the reason. And um, this one has John Bunch. So the interview goes something like this. So uh, the host says to John, um, you know, uh, find a place. Okay. So he says, I mean, punk was like, yeah, I'm a punk. I'm hardcore. But this specific word talking about emo, you know, there have been some articles written that are like, oh, I was an emo kid. That was back then. Ha ha ha. And I'm like, wait a minute. There was actually a seriousness to it. There was a community. When Sensefield was on Revelation, listening to the compilation in flight program, the diversity at that time. And then Bunch says, there was a scene, dude. It was a real scene. The first guys that called us emo were sick of it all. And then uh, the host, Tom, says, ha ha, I love sick of it all. And John says, 
That was probably around 94 or something like that. And they said it kind of as a jab, but they also recognized it was a branch of hardcore from the hardcore tree. They knew it was part of the scene. It wasn't a separate thing. It was rooted in punk rock and rooted in hardcore in its own way. Most all of the kids had a complete history and background of punk and hardcore music. And then Tom says, those bands played together. And John says, yeah, those bands played together. We played with Sick of It All a bunch of times. Mm. So you heard right, Jason. Oh, nice. Good, good. Um, so that was episode number 57 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with John Bunch. And then there's also an interview on 100 Words or Less podcast with Chris Evanson, if you'd like to hear more. And that's newer. The Chris one is from yeah. uh, very recently, I believe. May 26th right? is when it says it aired. Oh, so Interesting. Yeah, yeah, if you want to check those out, please do. So I go guess, to uh, 100 Words or Less podcast. Yeah. Um, Jason? Oh, Bit of Bo like to, No, I was going to say, Bit of Bo, Ray Harkins. Bit of Bo, Ray. Any Ray. personal... I have a sort of funny killed for less story. Yeah, kick it. You kick um, it first. I think we talked a little bit of, in the episode about like personal connections to the records. I mean, obviously you guys can share and, and building will be as I've mentioned 55,000 times, this is my war story. This is my war. Um, <laughs> my war. Is, uh, you know, <laughs> and you're build, one of them. Building is, is the one. I mean, that's the one. Like when I, if I listen to Sensefield, I usually put on building and then I end up just putting on the two, I guess, major label ones. I don't know um, if they were if major label or whatever. And the non-rev, you know, the, the ones after building, like I can listen to those over and over and over again. Um, so having already been into building, I remember it was like 99 and I had bought the first Eminem album. You remember when that came uh, out? The Marshall Mathers Slim, LP? Mm-hmm. Was it the Slim Shady LP? Wasn't that it? Or was that, I don't uh, know. Whatever the, first, whatever the first one was, EP. he was, he was going to be playing uh warp tour that year. And I saw the video and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to warp tour. And this is kind of cool. Like, I'll buy this. And I got it home and it was the edited version. So I took it back to, to this. Oh, the like buy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, I was listening. It's the decaf version. It was like okay. edited. And I guess at this point he started like really, um, you know, blowing up or, or maybe it was the opposite where he wasn't popular at that point. So there weren't any more copies left. So they were like, well, you can wait for one to come in or, you can just get store credit and grab something else. So I actually was like, well, I may as well get this sense field. I love building. <laughs> and um, I got killed for less. So I think like, you know, it was kind of like I got it as sort of an afterthought maybe. Mm-hmm. And like I'm a completist with discographies yep. to a fault. Yep. Um, so for a while, this was really just like, you know, an outlier to me. I'm even less familiar with the Buddha one. And I own them both. I've had them on CD, but um, if I do wonder if I would have bought this if that Eminem was not edited, maybe that's I'd be a doing, great story. Maybe we'd be doing a Death Row Records podcast <laughs> instead if uh, if that wasn't edited. <laughs> Listen, I'm almost the complete opposite with my Sensefield story. Okay, um, I you know 1994, 1995. I lived with Steve Aoki and his mom and those kids, you know, Steve and some of our other friends, they were like more, a little more into emo than hardcore. 
I was more into hard. I was more into unbroken and excessive force and some of like the heavier vegan stuff. Even at that time, these kids were into, uh, well, they were, they were snowboarders. So they were really into like no use for a name and lag wagon. And, you know, some of those kind of like epit those are epitaph bands, right? Uh, yeah. Fat. Fat, right. So that whole kind of sound, you know what I, I mean? know what you meant. Stuff yeah. that you would find in, in surf and snowboard and not so much skate videos at the time. And, and they loved Sensefield. And so Killed for Less was just a part of my soundscape from hanging out with those kids, whether I liked it or not. Like it, I just, I, if I got in someone's car and I couldn't pick out what someone was listening to, there's a good chance that it was going to be killed for less or ignore us, or even sometimes uh, like black train Jack or, you know, lag wagon. Like th this is just the stuff that I was exposed to. So it's so catchy that you just find yourself seeing, you know, uh, lines like I am running water or I found you or whatever it is. Like they just, they, they're like, it's like an earworm. It just gets into your brain and you can't, uh, you can't resist it. I didn't hear building until maybe last year when I found it at, uh, the used bookstore for a dollar <laughs> and decided to buy it because I knew that I'd have to have, I'd have to do my homework for this podcast. Cassette or CD? Did CD, you say CD. CD. And so I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll buy that for a dollar. And so I bought it, put it in the CD player. And I'm like, oh, this isn't, this doesn't sound the same as Killed for Less. I don't really enjoy this quite as much. And so I think I listened to it twice and then never went back to it. And so I'm really going to have to, I'm, I'm I'm glad that I, you know, I looked at the CD and I was like, oh, I found you, you know, and then I'm glad that I, I found it. But did you get my joke there just now? I did. Yeah, it okay. Was, I got it. it just wasn't funny. Yeah, because um, I remember you saying when, when revisiting, because you got to keep in mind with some of these albums, we either haven't really heard them too much mm -hmm. or hadn't heard them in a long time. Yeah. And I remember I, you saying when we were doing your homework for Killed for Less, you said like, oh, this brings me back to – yeah, it just high school. It does. And and I, I don't think that I there's a lot of these albums in this era that I haven't listened to this century. Straight up haven't listened to in the 2000s. Same here. Um notable ex exceptions to that, obviously, are far side into Next another week. and coming up soon, Engine Kid. I actually really enjoy angel wings and that's an album that stayed in semi-constant rotation yeah. um yeah that's to me with building was yeah like through you know it was one of those where i there there was never and i know this sounds wild to say a year mm. but like there was definitely never a year that went by where i didn't listen to that album mm -hmm. and usually it would be a bunch of times a year but i'm saying like even in a lean time where maybe it, i was busy it was still a, pl a very played record. You know, looking through the Sensefield discography, there's like three records that I've never heard a note of. And I'm Which one's Tonight and Forever? Under the Radar. So Under the Radar is, I believe, and they can clarify 
if, if, they, if they listen to this part of Chris and Rodney listen, yeah. or, you know, we can talk about with building, but under the radar, I think was an unreleased they, album. Yeah. Like they, they signed. So they did that weird, like split deal. Like they talked about, mm-hmm. um, maybe it was off camera, but building, you could actually get building in like Columbia house. I, I forget if that made it into the, what we talked about since we just got done talking about it. Um, or if it was off camera, but, um, it was, it had the rev star on it, but it said distributed by Warner brothers. And I think my CD copy was actually, I did a trade with a friend to get it. And I'm almost positive. It was like, you know, it said like manufactured by Columbia house, you know? Uh Um, and then I think they signed, but they were in this weird state of limbo and that's what under the radar. Cause a lot of those songs were redone for the tonight and forever uh, album, which wasn't until 2001. So they actually had five years between albums, which mm-hmm. back then especially was like a long time. Yeah. It was five years. Five yeah, years. Yeah, that's a long. I mean, that's all. Like, especially at a point where you still made money off of records. Mm-hmm. It's a long time. And then, yeah. and then they signed the label that Tonight and Forever was on was a label called, I think, not Network Sound. It was called like Network. Network America. And they, and they released uh, the Coldplay. Oh, oh really? Uh, yeah. Old Crow Medicine Show. Um, These are T- network bands. Tiesto, The Proclaimers, hmm. um, Ravers on Dope. Skinny Puppy, SPK. These are bands that I'm familiar with. Uh, yeah, and then I don't, I don't really. I want to say they toured with Coldplay, like when Coldplay did the first album. Parach- was it Parachutes? Was that the first? One? Uh-huh. I think that's the name of the first one. Yeah, yeah. Rush of Blood to Head was this to the second. Uh-huh. Um, a Rush of Blood to the Head was the second. So I, I feel like they opened again. They'll have to clarify for us, but um, okay, yeah. So that was uh, that's under the radar, and then actually living outside, I believe Rodney is not on the last album. Um, it says Rob Pfeiffer, Chris Evanson, John Bunch, John Stockberger. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I think at that point they were just a uh, four piece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I am really for some reason interested in the history of for the record where they recorded um, maybe because I have a personal connection to it, but I looked up on discogs to see all of the stuff that had been recorded there. Um, a meat puppets record was done there. Which one is monsters monsters, monsters in 1989. Oh, wow. It's on 89. SSD. It's the last one on SSD uh, mind over four. I don't know. If that rings a bell. No. Um, head first. Okay, so head first. It's the enemy. It says was kind of the first hardcore record, and that was done in 1990. And then Smile has a seven inch recorded there. And then it says, I think maybe it was mixed. The Bad Brains Spirit Electricity ten inch. I think you're oh, right. Cool. Uh huh. Gavin Oglesby had said that he did artwork for Bad Brains at some point, and I oh, couldn't find out what it. he did. Maybe that was it, though. Let's see. Spirit Electricity mm, doesn't say anything. Did on Game it. Face? Game Face did stuff it, before. Okay, the so listen. Well, right after after Bad Brains, 
Head First, House of Suffering, which I talk about a lot. I love that band. Farside Rochambeau. And then Greg Ginn did a lot of solo stuff there. In 1993, it says that he recorded like six records there. Or no, he did uh, three. Dick, Getting Even, and Payday. Um, you listen to any of those records? I remember seeing ads for them. Uh, Downer, which is ex-members of Head First. Outspoken, The Current was recorded there. Bitch Funky Sex Machine. Cadillac Tramps. Collateral Damage. Um, and then Sensefield, 94. Farside Rigged was recorded. It says after Killed for Less. I don't know if that's true. Uh, the Stitches. Uh, God Forgot, which is Dano, 1134, Ignite Call on My Brothers, Manic Hispanic, which now features Ephraim from Death by Stereo. Okay, then Game Face, Three to Get Ready. Oh, I love that album. Um, the Suppression Swing, Unbroken, Circa 77, Seven Inch. Ooh, that's a great uh, record, too. Jimmy nice. World, Whirlpool, uh, Farside Self-Titled, Black Spot Triceratops, we Talk, which is the band that I was in, recorded there, the Easy Rider Sessions and the split with Unra. You just went through this whole discography so you could say that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Redemption 87. Um, All Guns Pool. No, uh, Self-Titled. Yes, Self-Titled. Whirlpool, Liquid Glass. The God Money soundtrack had some stuff and mixed and recorded there. Violet World, a tribute to the Misfits. I'm going to assume that's ah. the Far Side Misfits cover. Yeah, Return uh, to Fly. Game Face Cupcakes. Love that uh, record. Too. Final Conflict Rebirth, a Operation Ivy cover album to uh, kind of put that back to, you know, a callback, as we say. Uh, Still Life, Adamantium. I mean, it just goes on and on. And so this is. Basically, starting in 89, you know, a lot of these bands are recorded, and it's everyone from like Cottonmouth Kings to Death by Stereo, Atreyu, Eyelid, Carry On did Stabbed in the Face there. Um, huh. Throwdown recorded there, like just so many bands. It just goes on and on and on, uh, all of these. And then if we want to take it to, let's see, recent times, um, the most recent listed is 2021 uh, Meat Puppets. Looks like maybe it was remixed there. Mm. Manic Hispanic, Phobia, Game Face, Every Last Time. Um, so, yeah, like it's just a really, really like incredibly the, – the history of this studio is rich and – I want to say this is like our Don Fury studio, right? This is the the West Coast because we have um, Pendragon, which has a lot of notable recording studios. But then this is where a great chunk of of bands recorded in all the way in the the '90s and early 2000s. So, you know who I, else was interested in uh, for the record? Tell me, Brian McTurnan. Ah. Uh, he uh hit me up and said because he knew we were doing killed for less mm -hmm. and he said that he wanted the um ashes lp to sound like to, it was recorded at uh for the record the, did yeah, he, he said yeah so go ahead kick it did he oh. did he did he did he record the ashes record 
Did he like produce it or was it somewhere else? I don't think so. Inner ear. That sounds about right. Sleepless nights, perhaps. Sleepless nights sounds right. To Wasn't me. that Isa from Good Clean Fun yes, Studio? Yes, I, uh-huh. I bet that's where it was recorded. It uh-huh. said, um, "Blah blah blah." He had given it to a friend. I'm going to say, I'm going to not name the person's name that he gave it to, and they said that it was. They thought the production was too slick, and uh, they weren't sure what he was going for. And he sent her the the building. All right, he said building. But he meant <laughs> <for less. laughs> anyway it's a he said it was through a letter it was a letter correspondence and he was going to try to find it for us oh nice that would be cool if he does but i mean mcturnan is a huge producer recording artist himself and i'm a huge i'm a huge ashes fan i actually i knew that i knew i bought the ashes demo from i had to rebuy the demo of course because you know we all sell stuff through the years unless you're unless you're jason who doesn't sell anything ever but um the ashes serenade demo cassette i just like had to have it back into my collection and i i'm a huge ashes fan bit about a brian yep yeah i mean i'm a huge brian fan i'm a huge mcturnan fan I'm yeah, gonna one up agree. you. I'm gonna one up you. <laughs> you and did literally that I am one up <laughs> a McTurnan fan. No, you're right. I am a huge McTurnan fan. My mm-hmm. whole family is. Jason, but, um, did you kick your uh your any any sense fields uh or killed for less? Dude, my killed for less. Um, I mean, when this came out, you kind of touched on it a little bit. When this came out, I was more interested in just hard, hard, hardcore neglect. You know, I was listening to Youth Crewish stuff and the other stuff head. on Rev. Such a meathead. That's what I loved. I love that stuff. And so I, when I heard this, I just thought, oh, this isn't my thing. But really that in-flight CD, we're going to get to it when we talk about that. That's a pretty instrumental thing. And I think changing people's opinions on what they should or shouldn't like. So I think that's going to be a cool one we, when we discuss that CD. I'm stoked. Yeah, I'm stoked on that one. Actually. But also... Uh, so John Bunch did backup vocals on Circa Now, the Rocket from the Crip record. And I remember when I heard that, I thought, yeah, that's so cool. And I went back and I listened to Sensefield and I can now see the common thread there that I didn't before. But now I'm also older and my tastes have been changed right. through the years, no, you know. You. And at the time, I just wanted what was I just wanted to go to shows where people went ape shit and I wasn't really concerned about good songwriting but these mm-hmm. are well-written songs they're just honestly to me they're they're just a great band like not yeah. even just coming from hardcore like i said like they were a great band with talented songwriters uh talented you know vocal vocalists musicians the whole thing can i say something though i think it would be i think if this okay. came out now no one would say yeah did you hear that new band Sensefield? they sound emo to me they just sound like rock you know rockish a hardcore a rockish band that had hardcore background i wouldn't call them an emo band necessarily but yeah like i they kind of didn't ever fit into that box the word emo yeah i didn't think so yeah like i mean i see where maybe building just because well here's for me the emo for me was bands like jimmy eat world yeah far side sense field and it's because they weren't quote-unquote big enough to be real rock bands at the time. So okay, they weren't hardcore, they weren't punk, they weren't rock, they weren't call it call the term college rock was already kind of gone by then. Uh-huh. So what else is there? There's like 
Yeah, I see why. Like, I see why they they got lumped into that whole thing. Mm-hmm. I guess the thing with especially bands like Farside and uh, Sensefield is the roots and what I think made people able to call them emo. This is just my opinion is that they had those roots in hardcore. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had a conversation with Chris and Rodney talking about, you know, discord and all that stuff. Like, you know, whereas like other, you know, rock bands, like even ones that I love, like from that nineties time, like you're not going to talk to, you know, Rivers Cuomo from Weezer is not going to talk to you about the SOA seven inch. Sure. You know what I mean? So like, that's where I think they get the whole, like e- the emo tag comes from is because of where they came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think Hob was talking at the beginning about how um, they were popular amongst some of his friends that were more into rock type stuff. But I think the lyrics is maybe why that hits with people. We didn't really say that. I think the lyrics kind of connect with people on that level. Yeah, yeah, and I and think this is also an album that's accessible to anyone maybe who is not doesn't just want to mosh. Yeah. Whether that be man, like I know I probably get shit for this, but you know, when we're when we're teenagers and this is coming out, of course my friends want to hang out with girls. And so they put this record on and the girls aren't like, ew, turn down that screamy heavy earth crisis or unbroken or what you know what i mean it's like everybody can get down to this this is an inoffensive accessible album and and that's i think it's a strength of it it's you know anybody could pick this up i could play i could pick my mom up from the airport have this on and she probably wouldn't turn it down yeah yeah, like, can I tell you something? 2021. Yeah. Your mom I was likes playing, this? No, Catherine. Oh. I was playing this. Catherine's my wife. I was playing this in the car. I was like, this is the band we're doing this week. I, I bet you'd probably like this. And she didn't ask me to turn that shit down. Okay. Yeah. And especially, like I said, I think the building, building, they really, I think, fine tuned everything. And I loved, one of the things I love about doing this podcast is getting the, the artist perspective and how they kind of even talked about it was sort of a conscious thing of, hey, like, hey, let's try to, like, streamline things a bit and not have maybe maybe not be as, like, they used the Pink Floyd example, you know, like, let's kind of tighten it up a bit. So I'm excited, super excited to talk about building. And uh, that's all I got, man. I'm, you know, I'm really interested to hear the history of the self-titled record, the Buddha record, because... You know, again, remembering that kind of coming out in real time and knowing that it, the people who liked Killed for Less maybe didn't like that record as much. So I'm excited to kind of review those those songs and know more about the history, like on Discogs, because I don't have those, I, the, the original CDs, I don't have access to them, right? The blue one, he, was, he kept referring. I don't know anybody that has one. And so I don't know where they recorded or how they were recorded or how they were produced or like they only made 50. Where did they sell them? They sell them at shows. Like, I want to know this shit. So it's, I mean, in fact, I didn't have, I didn't have a copy of the Buddha one. I, cause I had the, for the John Bunch Memorial, they did this really cool, uh, the box set kind of thing. LP. I I had that. And then finally, just like with you, with, with, 
you're building CD, I was kind of like, well, I want to have these anyway yeah. individually, but I was like, I may as well get them now rather yeah. than wait. Cause sometimes these things do like they had a repressive building. It's now out of print. Totally. So I knew like, I was like, I should just jump on it because as we know, time to buy us when you see it. it. Hey, like you see it. didn't Rev make, those Buddha shirts not that long ago, and they made like one. a couple yeah, wacky they still, colors. They still have those. Mm-hmm. I would love if they would do break out the building, uh, you know, or the kill for less. I would love if they would print them on not Anvil brand shirts or all style. The cat, that's what I mean, at all style. The Cadillac of shirts, it's not. And by Cadillac, I mean extremely long and uncomfortable. <laughs> Give me the pajama fit. I want the pajama fit of comfort colors. Or even, you know what? I've really, this is this is how I know that I've softened in my old age. I don't hate Gildan anymore. Yo, hey, I'm with you. Well, yeah, because when, right you, when you, you have all style, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's sort of like, it's, it's like, sort of like, it could be worse. It's, it's sort of like if you're like, oh, no, man, I, I don't want to have Pizza Hut. But then you start getting fed a piece of like Stroman bread with a, ketchup and you know like <laughs> cheese on it you're eventually going to be like you know what pizza hut's not that bad <laughs> no gildan did right. something their shirts are better quality I think hey so. uh last thing that's completely off the topic but uh-huh. a call a call back to maybe a couple episodes ago did you watch on snl on the elon musk episode there's a bit where they make fun of mayor of east town and they talk about the they talk about the accent, the murder and murder, yeah. murder, 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 murder. Did you watch that, Greg? I did. Oh my god, do, that do, shit was fucking hilarious. Do these dudes want some? You, these guys want some hoagies from the Wawa? Water. <laughs> yeah, there's a part where they're like. Stop, stop eating hoagies over the body. <laughs> <laughs> Man. And, That's and the most shine Wawa, I think, has ever gotten on a I national think so too. scale. <laughs> but it's funny because, you know, people, you say that people recognize your Philadelphia or your Pennsylvania accent all the time. And I don't really hear it that much. But then when I heard them making fun of the Pennsylvania accident, I heard your some of the words, that and now you, you say can't unhear it. I can't unhear it now. I mean, my family makes fun of the accent. My kids' wife, because uh-huh. my wife, my, you know, Becca, my wife, she was born in Georgia, but mm. she doesn't have like a southern accent. But she was, you know, born in Georgia, and then, you know, didn't come up here till she was about eight. At that point, you're kind of you're locked in. You're, you're already locked in. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Like, uh, so, I have the accent. Nice. And the thing is, I don't notice if my parents, you know, had, I don't know where I got if it you're, from. If you're in it, I don't know if you hear it, right? Yeah, that's the thing. They too. probably have it thicker than you and you just don't really notice it. I, by the way, I, I, I really enjoyed that uh, series, Mary. Mary of Easttown was a great watch. Yeah, and, it was good. Uh, also, last night, I just started uh, uh, Sweet Tooth. Which okay. is coming, come, come highly recommended as well. So I started um, Mr. Mercedes. Have you seen that? No. What's Stephen that all King? about? Uh-uh. Uh, it's, a, it's a like a kind of you know no ser- uh, because I, I got, thing. But hold on, kick it to kick <laughs> the soundtrack. Uh huh. I'm watching last night and Slapshot. What? Uh, no. Slapshot are on it like Ramones, Reagan Weird. Youth. So there really? actually is there actually is a lot of uh, 
like hardcore and punk on the soundtrack, but there was definitely Slapshot, um, Might Makes Right. Interesting. You know what I've been watching? Tell me. Hoarders. Hoarders. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're. I, I'm being friend, serious. Yeah, my friend Leah said she had a. Um, she had a, a garage sale this morning because she's like, I watched Hoarders and I got to get rid of this shit. Yeah, it's so awesome. It makes yeah, yeah. It doesn't make me feel so bad about all these piled up shirts and because yeah. at least, at least there's, there's other least stuff there's like I have. Organization, neat and orderly, yeah. and it has a purpose, or at least it yeah. has like a vision, and it's not just stuff that's thrown there for whatever reason. But I'm late on it. I know that people have watched Hoarders for years. But. Um, I, I the last time I tried to watch a Stephen King series, I got really burned. Which one was, was it? Castle Rock. Um, oh the, yeah, the, pay, the payoff was not worth the pain of sitting through a, a whole season. And the outsider was, really was disappointed. Cool. That was outsider it, was cool. And it was weird. I felt like it could have been weirder, but um, that was a good show. But castle rock cool. was a steaming pile of shit. And so I, just, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't, the book, the book, the outsider uh, was a good read. I, after watching the show, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I'll read the book. Maybe I'll end up doing that with Mr. Mercedes. I don't know. Interesting. But, um, bit of well, Steve. Yeah, uh, Jason. What do we have uh, next episode? Time. Next, next, next time. Next we, time we're talking a big one for all three of us. Big. All, it's number thirty-three. Bigged. Big. Bigly. <laughs> Bigly. Bigged. Um, and like I rigged. said, I did see Popeye play. I've now seen Popeye play acoustic twice, and so. Man, I would really love to hear those songs played electric with a band. I'm just saying because I could hear him playing some of the chords, and then I was waiting for the octaves for Kevin Murphy's guitar part to come in or some of the backup vocals. I was hearing it in my head, and I was like, "Man, I just want to hear a whole band version of this right now. It'd be so yeah. cool." So I'm hoping I, that we I can think convince. That, I them think to that play. where it went podcast is going to be the catalyst for a far side reunion god I rev 35 so. me and jason and hav rolling up jason in the volkswagen with, van jason and i with uh-huh. big gulps uh-huh. uh and <laughs> we're just gonna we're gonna own the place and we're gonna be watching far side laughing and crying at the same time <laughs> tears of joy god i hope so so it will all be right great. well we'll see you next episode everybody later bye-bye What's up, everyone? This is Javier from the Where When podcast. Just wanted to give a special bit of bow to our top-tier patrons, Billy Tunnell, Bram Hubble, Brandon Gavell, Brian Skiffington, Brooklyn, Cesar Falcon, Chad Keplinger, David Palmer, Dirk Focused, G. Jason Head, Greg Jackson, Jeremy Holohan, John Cowell, Quiet Keith, Logan Weasel, Maddie Cox, Nate of Head to Wall fame, Rob Moran, Tim Shear, Siren Records, and Dollar Slice Bootlegs. If you'd like to help us out every month, please visit www.whereitwentpodcast.com and you can learn how and you can learn about some other cool stuff. We'll see you next episode.